Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. I'm really glad to be back here podcasting with you. It was a super long and might I say a little bit tedious uh, holiday break there with a lot of traveling. And then I literally just got back from uh, California where I did the fourth interview for the Pre-Wrath film. And I thought I'd do just a real quick update on the whole film project because things are going really well. So uh, bear with me. So yeah, like I said, I just got back from California where I interviewed Dr. Alan Holtberg, who is a professor at Biola University and is a Pre-Rather. And that went really well. Um, I have some more interviews scheduled, but um, I'm, for the next month or so, basically just going to be writing. So I need to finalize the script because without a script, I can't really get any of the computer graphic stuff uh, in motion. And I can't really uh, do find a lot of the B-roll. A lot of the stuff that needs to happen really needs to come from the script. But I didn't really want to finalize a script until, number one, I had a pretty good amount of data to work with in terms of the interview interviews themselves and have them transcribed and everything. But also I was holding off because I needed to know what the title was and because I figured whatever the title was would probably inform the direction of the script and the story and it would all be some cohesive whole. So I did on the break come up with a title and subtitle that I think will work really well. This was tested with Google AdWords. So Uh, I put a lot of different uh, ideas into Google AdWords and they would kind of A, B different results and would judge click-through rate. And I did all this using keywords that were not pre-wrath specific. So they were end time specific, but not pre-wrath specific. So I was only serving it up to what I hope were pre-tribbers or mid-tribbers or post-tribbers or whatever. But I would say, anyway, the far and away winner was this one. It was called Seven Pre-Trib Problems. Seven Preacher Problems is sort of the the big title on the DVD box or the social media material, uh, the promotional stuff. But the I tested a lot of subtitles as well. The winner and the one I like for other reasons too is and the pre wrath rapture. So seven pre-trib problems and the pre wrath rapture. Uh, that subtitle might use some tweaking, but I really like it that it says the pre-wrath rapture in the title because that actually helps with some other keyword stuff. The seven pre-trib problems themselves will be uh, seven uh, paragraphs uh, that have been well thought out and heavily footnoted, Uh, but in terms of how it's presented in the film, it will be presented differently, but the problems themselves will be a separate entity almost that we're going to do some really cool stuff with after the uh, release of the film that I'm excited to be talking about later on, but I need to think about it just a little bit more. But all that to say that there's an entire sort of second phase to this whole thing that I'm really excited about. Finally, I wanted to mention that Alan and I brought on another producer. Uh, I haven't talked to him about mentioning his name yet, so I won't yet, but I don't think it's a big deal. But uh, he is more on the film side than, well, much more on the film side than either Alan and I uh, are so he's really helping put together the pieces on the production side uh, but also has a lot of great ideas about the sort of post-production stuff especially with the uh, promotional material and all that stuff so basically he's a jack of all trades is really going to help uh, make this a high quality movie and he's a pre-rather too and so we're excited about that and then finally the the funding has been doing excellent I think we're at 73 or 74 percent right now so thanks to everybody that has donated. You can do so at prerathmovie.com. Let's get into the podcast. Okay, so in the last podcast, it was basically a refutation of Dr. Mark Hitchcock's quote and overview of pre-tribulational arguments where he gave his seven best reasons for believing in a pre-trib rapture. 
So in the previous podcast, we dealt with four of those, playing some audio from him and then uh, and then refuting it. So in this podcast, we are going to deal with the final three arguments that he makes, but two of those three arguments are really easily and quickly dealt with. So it, this podcast is really its own thing, which is dealing with the third argument he makes, which is about the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2 being the Holy Spirit, which he says is an argument for pre-tribulational and I am going to use that as a springboard to talk about how the restrainer is almost certainly Michael the Archangel. But before we get to the restrainer, let's first deal with these uh, easily dismissed arguments that he makes. The first is that there is a time gap between the rapture and the second coming. So this needs to be decoded a little bit because when a pre-tribber says second coming, he's actually referring to Armageddon. So he's saying that there's a time gap between the rapture and Armageddon to which... Most everybody in the world, including every pre-rather, would say, uh, yeah, obviously, uh, this is true. This is basically like another point that he made earlier where it's not actually an argument for pre-tribulationalism. It is an argument against a straw man, the straw man of post-tribulationalism, which is clearly wrong in my opinion. So, so much of pre-tribulationalist arguments are basically congratulating themselves on how they are not post-tribulationalism. So to recap, both pre-rathers and pre-tribbers and mid-tribbers and just about everybody except a certain kind of segment of post-tribulationalists would agree that there is a time gap between the rapture and Armageddon. Uh, so that one, as I said, is easily dismissed. The second easily dismissed argument is that he says that the pre-tribulational rapture is the only one that accurately reflects the so-called blessed hope. Uh, lots of of, of verbiage in the, in the New Testament talks about how we have a blessed hope and then the rapture is our blessed hope. The idea is that he will say that pre-rathers don't really have a blessed hope and they will kind of mock it and say um, the pre-rathers think that they're going to be persecuted by the Antichrist before the rapture. Tell me how that can be a blessed hope. They have no hope uh, if they're going to be persecuted before that. Tell me how that is hopeful. That's basically the line of argument that they say. It's very emotional. It's very, that's not a hope. A persecution is, is not a hope. So we're going to talk about what that really means uh, and show how terrible and really close to heretical this argument is. The blessed hope, the rapture, is not just a hope in, you know, being caught up in the clouds. The, the blessed hope is the hope, and Paul makes this extreme, extremely clear in the New Testament. It's the day that he his eternal life begins, his reward. Several times Paul talks about that's the day that he gets his reward is for all his hard work. The blessed hope of, of being with Christ for eternity, for, for having eternal life. The object of our hope is being in heaven with the Lord and being rewarded and, and the end of our race and all those other things. It is it is certainly uh, nothing to do with the what may or may not happen in terms of persecution before that event happens and doesn't diminish that. That hope doesn't get diminished no matter how much persecution I endure now or under the Antichrist. No matter the worst thing that can happen to me right now doesn't diminish the hope of eternal life with Christ and the rewards and all the things that go with that. If you analyze what this argument is, he's essentially saying that his blessed hope is in a painless exodus from earth. That his hope is that when he is raptured, he will be raptured without having any undue pain beforehand. 
his blessed hope is the fact that he gets to be raptured before uh, any nastiness with the Antichrist. That's what his hope is. He would, of course, not agree with that. It, it is because it is a stupid argument to make, and it is just just really close of a heretical argument to make that say that, oh, the pre-Rathers don't have a blessed hope because they say that, that there's going to be persecution from the Antichrist before uh, the rapture. It's just, it's apples and oranges. It's not even the same thing. So again, this is the second easily dismissed part of his argument. Okay, so that brings us to the actual point of this podcast, which is talking about the restrainer. So his final argument is that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in 2 Thessalonians 2, which is an argument for the pre-tribulational rapture. And I would agree with that. If the restrainer is, in fact, uh, the Holy Spirit, I suppose you could make the case that there is a pre-tribulational rapture. So I get, I get this one. This is actually an argument from Scripture. I like it. So let's get into it. What does it say about the restrainer? Let's start reading from verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day won't come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So Paul is saying that there, this restrainer is restraining the revealing of the Antichrist. Now, I would say that the revealing of the Antichrist contextually is definitely talking about the abomination of desolation. Uh, that argument, I think, is very clear. A lot of people believe that. But even if we just assume that the revealing of the Antichrist was maybe that first thing, maybe the covenant, the beginning of the seven years, in any case, the restrainer is uh, restraining the revealing of the Antichrist. Now, I actually think that Paul is making a two-tiered argument here. The first part of this argument is that there are two things that precede the parousia, two things that precede the gathering together and the day of the Lord. That is to say, the apostasy and the revealing of the Antichrist. So that's his main point. There's two things that precede the rapture these things are the apostasy and the revealing of the Antichrist. Secondary, almost bolstering point is that you know that one of those things, the revealing of the Antichrist, is being restrained. This restrainer, we he's saying, we talked about this earlier. This restrainer is restraining. And when he stops restraining, then the revealing of the Antichrist uh, will come. And then you could be worried that you have missed the rapture because you're in the day of the Lord, if, if all of those things happen. So it's kind of tied up. The restraining idea is tied up in the first uh, point that he makes, which is that there are two events that must precede the day of the Lord. So the argument that a pre-tripper would make for the restrainer being the Holy Spirit is a little complex, especially when it gets into how that has anything to do with the pre-tribulational rapture. The lead-in argument is always, and I've read a lot of different arguments for the restrainer being the Holy Spirit, and they uh, there's a lot of fancy words and sort of rabbit trails and these kinds of things, but the main argument, in fact, I would say probably the only argument that they're making is something like this. We all know that the only thing that can restrain Satan is God. They have this very, very dualistic view all of a sudden, pre-tribbers do in this issue, and they say that the, the Satan is just so utterly powerful that no thing in the world could restrain him except for God himself. And then they'll spend some time on the 
the Trinity, and then they'll say, well, then that means the Holy Spirit must therefore be the restrainer since there's no other option in their view. There is no other thing that can restrain Satan, and therefore it has to be God, i.e. the Holy Spirit. So this then gets into the, well, what does it mean that the restrainer is removed? Well, they'll say that the removal of this restrainer is the catching up of the church. All the church, basically dead and alive, disappears from the earth. This is the, in their view, the removal of the restrainer. The concept there is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a, in a believer's body, being taken away from the earth all of a sudden, uh, that, that, that cumulative, because really that's what it comes down to, is that they believe that there's some sort of cumulative magic in the idea that, that lots of bodies have the Holy Spirit in it, which is sufficient to restrain Satan. Now, they would themselves admit, or, or at least say, that there are, are people that become Christians after the rapture, and they talk about the, the salvation of the Jews afterwards. So there certainly is the Holy Spirit, and they'll all make this point, that even immediately after, there's going to be people that have the Holy Spirit indwelling in their bodies after the rapture. But apparently, the idea is that it's not sufficient enough. There needs to be sort of a cumulative amount of Holy Spirit in people's bodies to sufficiently restrain uh, the revealing of the Antichrist. So if this is true, it would represent the only, as far as I know, the only proof text for pre-tribulationalism. It would be the only place in the Bible that says that the rapture occurs before the revealing of the Antichrist. Now you could say, well, what is the revealing of the Antichrist? If you can make the case, which I absolutely think you can, that the revealing of the Antichrist must be a reference to the abomination of desolation, it, it doesn't help them at all. But basically, they have to make the revealing of the Antichrist also be a reference to either the covenant or maybe even the precursors, the wars or something, before the Antichrist was even on the scene. They have to do something like that. Uh, so they have to deal with the revealing of the Antichrist looking a whole lot like the midpoint in 2 Thessalonians 2. They have to disregard that first. But if they can do that, and they can get you to believe that no one can restrain Satan except for the Holy Spirit, and they can get you to believe that the removal, or, or rather the removal of the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the same thing as the rapture, and that that would somehow uh, allow the re uh, revealing of the Antichrist. If you can believe all that stuff, then in fact this is a good and in fact the only uh, proof text for the pre-tribulational rapture, at least in any kind of explicit sense. So let's start looking at the problems of this first before we really get into Michael the Archangel being the actual restrainer here. So let's look at some of the problems with this and let's start off with the main point. And I really can't stress that enough, that the main thing that they're, uh, they need you to believe here is that the only possibility for restraining Satan, and therefore the only way to interpret this, there's no other interpretation should ever be even considered because there's only one thing that can restrain Satan or, or fight Satan or have anything to do with Satan uh, other than God. The idea for that biblically would probably go back to Ezekiel uh, 28. So this is where uh, Ezekiel was talking about the king of Tyre. And this is where we get a lot of the sort of uh, before Satan's fall. Satan was a created being. Remember, Satan took one third of the angels with him when he fell. Two-thirds, apparently, still doing all right. Lots of, uh, we'll talk about Michael and the rest later, but but he took one-third of the angels with him. But, of course, there are different ranks of, of angels, and it seems that Satan was particularly high-ranking, if not maybe even the most high-ranking. That's not entirely clear, but you could be forgiven for thinking that. So I wouldn't say that anything in there explicitly says uh, that, that Satan was the most powerful of all the angels. Um, I don't think it's a bad guess, and it may have even been true. I'm not going to deny that it that it could have been the case. 
but it certainly doesn't say anything about what the next most powerful angel was. Um, and I'm going to make the case that's almost certainly Michael, although I don't know that for sure either. But whoever the next most powerful created being was, assuming that Satan was the most powerful being, how much of a difference between power levels are there between those two? Let me read this and then you tell me that no one can possibly have anything to do against Satan. He's way too powerful other than God. Let me read you something from Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough to prevail, so there was no longer any place left in heaven for him and his angels. So that huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to earth and his angels along with him. So Satan is specifically mentioned as not being strong enough against a army of angels led by Michael. Does that mean that Michael himself is as strong as Satan? I mean, you could get into these numbers games. We're not told how many angels uh, were on each side of the army there, but we do know Satan and his entire army was defeated by Michael and his entire army. So I don't know how many angels against how many angels that was, but the core idea here is that Michael is pitted against Satan in the Bible and Michael wins. Uh, this is not the only time in the Bible this basic idea happens that Michael and Satan are uh, seen as equals. Uh, Jude 9, I believe it is, Jude 9, 9 talks about this odd event I think from Enoch, but uh, basically this odd event that that the body of Moses was contended uh, between Michael uh, and and Satan. So again, you put it's pitting these two guys against each other as apparent equals. If you buy uh, one Enoch, which I think there is of course some uh, evidence for that, because of course Jude mentions Enoch and quotes from it. I mean, at least that quote can be considered inspired. But I don't take much from Enoch. But that being said, Enoch certainly. Uh, views Michael in this uh, sort of way too. In fact, Michael was the one that was sent to bind the sons of God, uh, which is basically this, the origin of all chaos myth, uh, really is this thing that, that Michael did. Michael was the one who took those sons of God that uh, that uh, fell from heaven and went to earth to to create essentially the Nephilim offspring. He took the angels, the sons of God, and put them in Tartarus. It was Michael that did that. So Michael is is no slouch. He is called an archangel. We don't exactly know what that means, but we do know he leads armies and is apparently high ranking. In the book of Daniel, he is called upon by Gabriel to help uh, with this uh, hindering from the prince of Persia. So there we see another angelic battle in which Michael is specifically called upon to help with. So to recap this particular point, it was all just to basically say that there is something, namely Michael the Archangel, that can in fact uh, restrain Satan, contend with Satan, fight with Satan, is considered an equal with Satan both in the Bible and as we're going to see in the extra biblical text at the time that Paul was writing. Uh, that is really one of the main contributions of Colin Nickel, which we'll talk about as we get uh, into the actual meat of this argument. So one of the interesting things about 2 Thessalonians 2 is that Paul seems to suggest that the restrainer idea was understood by the Thessalonian church. He says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So this idea that Paul has apparently taught or that they should inherently know who the restrainer is has been a bit of a point of contention. Paul says the same kind of thing about the apostasy earlier in 2 Thessalonians 2, that it's something that he they should know about. The apostasy is a definite article, which means that they should have known about it. Some pre-tribbers that think about this, um, like 
Dr. Craig Blazing has said in the past that both the apostasy and the restrainer, because they were said to have been known, and because it is not apparently shown or taught in the first letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and many scholars believe that there was a, a, a second letter in between those two, uh, basically that's lost to history, that they say maybe all that information was in that lost letter. Like in that lost letter, as opposed to Paul just telling them when he was with them, that he wrote a letter in which he told them what the restrainer was, what the apostasy was, and now that's lost to history. So literally, Craig Blazing says that the apostasy and the restrainer are unknowable to the modern world because they were lost to history. So we can't know what they are, at least explicitly. But I would say there's a much, much better reason for Paul believing that they should know that Michael the archangel was a necessary precursor to the revealing of the Antichrist. And the answer is that this whole thing about Michael the archangel being removed just before the abomination of desolation is something that you can get from a study of the Olivet Discourse, the end times teaching of the Lord on the Mount of Olives, uh, which is pictured in Matthew 24, Mark 13, etc., etc. So the Olive Discourse is basically all Paul is doing in 2 Thessalonians 2 is when he's saying, hey, you haven't missed the rapture, verse 31 of Matthew 24, because the apostasy and the man of sin being revealed, both of which are precursors to the rapture in Matthew 24, all Paul is doing is saying, hey, don't you know your Bible? Matthew 24 tells you guys straight up, you haven't missed the rapture because you haven't seen the abomination of desolation yet. You haven't seen the apostasy that is essentially a result of the abomination of desolation. So where am I getting that this understanding that the restrainer, i.e. Michael the archangel, will actually stop restraining, which will then allow for the abomination of desolation? Where am I getting the idea that that can somehow be an outgrowth of a teaching of the Olivet Discourse? So let's turn to Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. It says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So that first thing is really interesting. It seems to be a very clear demand that if you want to understand more about this abomination of desolation, which in itself is the exact phrase used in Daniel, a clear reference to a very Danielic concept, which is used several times in Daniel, the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand that part too. Basically, all of this is saying, hey, blinking light, turn to Daniel, turn to Daniel. But even further than that, more proof that you as a, as a good teacher are supposed to turn to Daniel to get more information about this is the next uh, thing that he says, or in, in verse 21, where it says, for then will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That phrase is basically a verbatim quote from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, which is right in the middle of this abomination of desolation situation. So not only does Jesus say, hey, turn to Daniel in general, and specifically about the abomination of desolation, but he says, I'm going to tell you exactly where in Daniel to turn, i.e. Daniel chapter 12. So let's do it. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 12, starting verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. Uh, there, again, it's, that's where we get even the tribulation idea. The time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. There's that phrase that Jesus uses. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. 
some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we have the resurrection all mixed in with the abomination of desolation. We have the resurrection mixed in with this time of trouble, which will be unparalleled in history. But all of that is that midpoint, that rapture, all this language is also intertwined with, did you see it? Number one, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. What in the world does this arising of Michael have to do with the abomination of desolation? I mean, just the fact that Michael's quote-unquote arising in Daniel 12.1 has anything to do with the abomination of desolation is interesting in itself and has been rarely dealt with by anyone. Uh, what is Michael's arising doing? And here's the problem, because a lot of this comes down to the translation of what does shall arise mean? Michael shall arise at that time. What does that mean? Because contextually, it doesn't look good. Because we get the idea that Michael is who is a protector of the people of Israel, right? It says it right there in verse 1. He has, he has uh, and we see that in other places in Scripture. Michael is a protector of Israel. And he arises... And we get the sense from the pre-trib camp and people that, that don't want anything bad to happen ever. They say, he's arising to defend. I'm going to, I stand up in order to defend Israel during this great time of trouble. But that is not what the text says. His arising is immediately followed by a time of trouble that has never been since there was a nation till that time. His, if he is arising to protect Israel, then he as I've said before, is doing a terrible job of it or is overwhelmed, is unsuccessful, because that is also the time in which the time of trouble begins, especially in centered in Israel. So in a way, it kind of comes down to how do you interpret this Hebrew word in Daniel 12 in terms of at that time shall arise, Michael? What does that mean, shall arise? And the issue that we've had is that the Masoretic text and the Septuagint don't really agree. So part of what Colin Nickel did in his paper was a, a very lengthy sort of discussion about why the Masoretic and the Septuagint doesn't do, don't really agree. And they have sort of an odd, odd translation thing happening here. But he makes the case that the Septuagint version, specifically in Manuscript 233, it, it, it's understood as instead of standing up, rather to pass aside or to withdraw. And he makes his case that that's really what the, not only the reason, the right translation, but also shows how the Masoretic text came to its conclusion and why it came to its conclusion of this sort of standing up idea and how it relates to the passing aside. But he, he significantly also in his paper goes into the early, uh, not only late rabbinical stuff, but also the stuff that's contemporary with Paul to show that the interpretation of Daniel 12.1 and Michael standing up here and then the time of trouble that followed was understood at that time as Michael passing aside, Michael withdrawing to allow this to happen. Not Michael defending, but rather Michael stepping aside to allow the time of trouble to begin. That That's significantly what he does is to show that that was the belief uh, of the early rabbinical understanding of Daniel 12 and uh, certainly during Paul's time. So I'm going to read his conclusion. He says, we suggest that Michael could plausibly have been viewed as a restrainer figure based on Daniel 10, 12. And I should mention that he also has another place uh, where he shows in this paper that not that Michael was literally the same Greek word for restrainer that was used in 2 Thessalonians 2 was used to describe Michael specifically in reference to Michael warring against Satan. So there is a lot of really uh, cooperative evidence that he brought up as well. But anyway, continuing. 
and that there is evidence that he was viewed in precisely this way in subsequent Jewish thought. Moreover, significantly, the Septuagint Manuscript 233 and Ruth Rabbah testified to the fact that Daniel 12, 1a, the verse that we just read, was interpreted by contemporaries of the author of 2 Thessalonians as indicating that Michael will, quote, pass aside or, quote, withdraw before unequaled tribulation breaks out upon God's people, 12, 1b. The author of 2 Thessalonians appears to have understood Daniel 12, 1a similarly in light of 2 Thessalonians 2, 4b. It is difficult to avoid the conclusion that he understood Daniel 11.45a as referring ominously to the events immediately preceding the abomination of desolation that would naturally have led him to conclude that Michael would be removed just prior to the temple desecration and the outbreak of the final tribulation. Such an interpretation of Daniel 11.45-12.1 through 12, 1 would explain eminently well the logic of 2 Thessalonians 2.6-8. So now let's kind of conclude this by looking at Revelation 12. And the reason I want to talk about this, this is the war in heaven, which we talked about earlier, in which Michael uh, wars with Satan, defeats Satan, throws him to ground, uh, to, the, to the earth, Satan is then mad uh, because he knows it has a short time. That short time is specifically mentioned three times in this chapter, Revelation chapter 12, to be three and a half years. It refers to it as 1,260 days, a time times and half a time, and a short time, all of which are referencing the midpoint. And so this war with Michael in which he casts Satan to the ground is connected to the midpoint. I think Michael, a nickname for him should be Midpoint Michael. And I think that's my my point for this uh, turning to Revelation chapter 12. I think I said in the early documentary, or it wasn't a documentary, just a little video that I did on pre-wrath, that Michael may have stood up in Revelation 12 to go do this war in heaven. But in any case, whatever the case with Daniel 12, 1, where he, where he stands aside or lets whatever it is happen, the, the abomination and the revealing happen, uh, this war in heaven is right at that same time in which he casts him to earth. But nevertheless, my point is that Michael is just so linked to this midpoint which is so linked to the abomination of desolation, which is so linked to the persecution that follows it. It's just an inseparable part of Christian theology. And I think that's an argument that pre-tribbers sometimes make with this, and they see, oh, how can Michael be the archangel? As if as if Paul would just out of nowhere talk about Michael. I mean, that's just, that's just odd. He wouldn't do that because, you know, where did this come out of the blue that he's talking about Michael? No, as we've seen, it's not out of the blue. This is the midpoint, the very thing that Paul is discussing there, the abomination of desolation. Michael is all over that in the Bible. He is, he's just an integral part of that midpoint thing. Again, midpoint Michael, I think is a good, uh, a good name. So as a way of summing this up, I'm going to actually read from an article that Alan Kirshner posted on his blog called Six Reasons Why Michael is the Restrainer. And number one, he has contemporary Jewish literature during Paul's time viewed the characteristics of Michael having eschatological preeminence as the chief opponent of Satan and the restrainer of God's people. Number two, Michael is viewed as a celestial restrainer of God's people in Daniel 10 through 12, the passage serving as a source of Paul's exposition in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 8. Number three, Daniel's use of the term MD, I don't know how to pronounce it, comports with the ceasing activity of the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2 through 6. Uh, number four, the Greek term parakomai in Daniel 12, 1 of the Septuagint means, quote, to pass by, which corresponds with the ceasing of restraint in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 7. Number five, early rabbinic interpretation of Daniel 12, 1 perceived Michael as passing aside or withdrawing 
just after the Antichrist establishment near or at the Temple Mount, Daniel 11.45, and just before the eschatological unequal tribulation against God's people, Daniel, Daniel 12.1. And number six, Revelation 12.7-17 supports viewing Michael as the restrainer because it links the cessation of Michael's war against the dragon with the unprecedented persecution of God's people, which is consistent with 2 Thessalonians 2.6-7 and Daniel 11.45-12.1. And I'll just finish up by saying that any argument for the identity of the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians, in the future, those arguments need to go through the Michael as restrainer argument. It is by any metric a much better, more cohesive argument for the identity of the restrainer than anything that has been put forward. Anyway, uh, went a little bit longer than I was thinking today. Glad to be back. I think I should be able to get to another podcast. I have yet another commitment uh, next weekend, though, so I'm not 100% sure I'll be able to get one out, but I will give it uh, the old college try. So anyway, thanks a lot for being with me, and we'll see you next time. <music>